0: The Old Testament reading is found in Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant with me, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. No, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my instructions within them and engrave them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will no longer need to teach each other to say, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares
1: Good morning. My name is Eric, and the New Testament reading is found in the book of 1 John, chapter two, verses 12 through 14. Little children, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus' name. Parents, I'm writing to you because you have known the one who has existed from the beginning. Young people, I'm writing to you because you have conquered the evil one. Little children, I write to you because you know the Father. Parents, I write to you because you have known the one who has existed from the beginning. Young people, I write to you because you are strong. The word of God remains in you and you have conquered the evil one. the word of the Lord. Good morning,
0: my name is Debbie. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 19:25 through27. Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene stood near the cross. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. The Gospel of the Lord.
2: Please remain standing with me as we pray today, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask God that you would meet us today in the midst of our lives, in the midst of all of the emotions that we're feeling today, in the midst of the questions that we have, in the midst of our celebrations and our sorrows, in the midst of our profound faith and our struggles with doubt and with questions, in the midst of our moments where we feel that we have some clarity, and in the moments where we feel so confused Would you speak to us by your spirit through your word? Speak to our hearts. Meet us here and help us as we continue to long to be transformed into your image and follow your ways in our lives. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, good to see you, New Life Downtown. You may be seated. Hello to everyone who's here, hello to everybody that's watching online, and happy Mother's Day, everyone. It's great to see you today. Uh, For the moms in the room, we love you, we celebrate you, we honor you today. For my mom, who either was watching at 9 or 11, I'm not sure which one, so happy Mother's Day, mom. And Sarah, happy Mother's Day, I'm delighted to watch you uh, in your role as mom with our kiddos, so thank you. Thank you. Uh, about 15 years ago uh, Sarah and I were living in Kentucky and I was Co-pastoring a, a small church inside of uh, Lexington, it was a bivocational gig. So there were three of us pastoring together, all working other jobs and pastoring this small community. And the community, in very in so many ways, reminds me of New Life downtown. We were deeply committed uh, to following the church calendar and letting our lives be oriented around the life of Jesus. We were committed to preaching through the Bible, through specific texts and books, and we were committed to coming to the table. Every single week. In fact, when we visited New Life Downtown for the first time, we felt in so many ways we were back in that community that we were a part of for uh, about eight years of our lives in Kentucky. While we were there, we decided about 15 years ago in 2008 that we were going to track a sermon series along with the church calendar and we were going to start working through the first five books of the Bible. We're going to work through the Torah, so Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. So we thought. okay here's what we'll do in the Epiphany and tide, the beginning of the year, we'll preach kind of big picture through the book of Genesis. And then when we get to Lent, we'll preach through Exodus. And then after Easter, we'll start working our way through the book of Leviticus. Um, so we start kind of mapping everything out in our minds. Okay, we'll do one sermon series on the sacrificial system and all the different kinds of offerings. And we'll do one series, uh, one, one sermon on the atonement theories and We'll do one, on, and we, sh- we showed up on Sunday morning, we're, we're setting the table, we're getting all ready, and it's the Sunday that we're going to do clean and unclean laws, and it dawns on us, it's Mother's Day. <laughs> and our whole sermon is death and blood and fluids. So thankful I was not preaching that day. <laughs> But we created the most awkward mother 's Day memory for everyone in history, uh, so i 'm so grateful today to not be preaching from Leviticus, but instead we 're in First John, continuing our series from there. First John is a sermon written by a first follower, an original follower of Jesus, to a church that finds itself in crisis. A church that's been broken apart by the rise of false teachers, people who are teaching things about Jesus that are not true and leading people away from Jesus and away from fellowship inside of the church. And John writes this sermon to reassure, to comfort, to encourage those who've remained faithful to the gospel and who've remained faithful to one another. In his follow up letters of 2nd and 3rd John, the author simply identifies himself as the elder. It's likely that this could be a reference to his age. As an early follower of Jesus, he would have been significantly on an age at this point toward the end of the first, beginning of the second century. Or it could be a reference to his office as someone who has overseen house churches in and around the area of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. It's likely both. He's likely a, an elder gentleman who's overseen these churches, but he speaks to the church with deep affection. He speaks to them with profound love. He actually calls the church, my children, and in other places, little children. He speaks to them as a loving parent, offering to them in the midst of this trial wisdom and comfort. He's reminding them about what's true of Jesus and what's true about them and what's true about the world and what's true about the world to come. And as we listen to John, it's actually what we long for or we look for in our parents or in parental uh, figures in our lives. Or what we hope our children find in us is that we might be the places, the people that they go to, to be reminded of what is true about Jesus to be reminded of what is true about ourselves or about one another, to be reminded about what's true about the world now and the world to come. And so with that affection, he writes these words in chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. He says, little children, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven Jesus' name. Parents, I'm writing to you because you have known the one who has existed from the beginning. Young people, I'm writing to you because you have conquered the evil one. And then he comes back and addresses each group again. Little children, I write to you because you know the Father. Parents, I write to you because you know the one who has existed from the beginning. Young people. I write to you because you are strong. The word of God remains in you and you have conquered the evil one. John here addresses three groups in the church and he does so using familial language. He uses the language of children and young people and parents. He certainly has biological relationships in mind, but not exclusively or even primarily so. His primary sense is the way in which people fit into these groups within the context of the church. It's common in the scriptures to extend the language of family beyond biology, to actually talk about the faith community in the same ways, in the same language that we talk about families, to extend it into a way of saying, hey, What we have or should have experienced in our families of origin actually gives us a picture of what life in the church should look like. One of the most vivid and compelling pictures that we have of this actually comes in our gospel gospel reading, where we see Jesus on the cross, and as he looks down from the cross, he sees his mother, and he sees the disciple that he loves, And he says to his mother, behold your son. And he says to his disciple, behold your mother. And then John tells us that she went and lived with him for the rest of her days. That here the extension of family went beyond blood and biology to the very rootedness and connectedness that we have in Jesus as the church began to care for one another in familial ways. These three categories then represent for us not just stages of life in terms of age, but stages of life in our faith moments of development, the stages of our spiritual formation, the path that we go on toward maturity. Children represent those whose faith is new. It's burgeoning. It's alive. It's just sort of coming out from underneath the surface. Young people are those whose faith is still developing. And parents represent those whose faith has become deeply Rooted, and that they've grown to the place that their faith becomes a shelter for others who are new to faith or who are growing in faith. And so whether or not we have children of our own, whether we have children through birth or adoption or through foster care, all followers of Jesus are actually called to grow from being children to being spiritual parents, to being mothers and fathers in the church, to those who live in community the way that fathers and mothers are intended to inside of family. That all of us can actually think about our lives, our growth and faith, and identify men and women who came alongside of us as spiritual moms and dads. My whole life, I can look in my journey of faith and identify those people. And there have been so many who have fit that role of spiritual mom who've come alongside me as a new believer, as a teenager, all the way walking me through into understanding my calling and my vocation. I think of Deb Quintus and Tammy Perry. I think of Susan Seely and Casey Steele. I think of Christine Pohl and Sandy Richter and woman after woman after woman who has shown me the love of God, who has paved pathways for me, who's come alongside of me and reminded me of who Jesus is and who I am in him and what the mission of the church is. And when I look across this room, I see so many faces where you, women of God, have come alongside people in our congregation. And you have been spiritual moms in this community, spiritual dads in this community. And I am so unbelievably grateful for the way in which you live out this calling in our midst together as paul or as john's writing here he's addressing these three groups with this idea in mind and he reiterates themes to them he talks to them about things he's already mentioned previously in his letter he's talking about things that are actually true of all believers but he's particularly and pastorally applying them to these spaces in faith he's talking about the forgiveness of sin the knowledge of God, the word of God, victory over evil. And his language particularly recalls the prophecies in the Old Testament about the new covenant. The language he uses is actually really reminiscent of what we find in Jeremiah 31, where Jeremiah emphasizes knowing God, and the forgiveness of sin. Jeremiah 31, 34 says this, that in the new covenant, they will no longer need to teach each other, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of these to the greatest, from the youngest to the oldest, from the newest in faith, to those who are the most seasoned among us, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. This echo is not an accident at all. What John is saying is that the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah has come to pass. It's come to fulfillment in Jesus, and the church is now participating in what Jeremiah said would come true that we now all know Jesus and we know the forgiveness of sin. He's speaking that this covenant has actually come true in our lives. In our world, we don't use the word covenant very often. We use it in religious settings and in real estate. You're, you know, sort of HOA covenant community. You know, the one that sent you the letter this week about the grass in your front yard and wanting to know when you were going to turn your sprinkler system on. And you said, have you seen it outside? We don't need any sprinklers Yeah, But that's the only two places we use covenant. But in the ancient world, in the Bible, we find the word over and over and over again. Covenant in that context was a social, legal, and political term. Maybe the closest word in our vocabulary that we have to it is the word treaty. It's an agreement between two people or two groups of people, sometimes even more, to act in certain ways toward one another, to come alongside, to partner together to be in a peculiar and particular relationship with each other. It was a relationship that was based on reciprocity. You do this for me and I'll do this for you. And because there was a mutuality or reciprocity about the relationship, covenants in the ancient world relied heavily on familial language. If the covenant was between equal parties, they would say, we're going to act like brothers toward one another, or we're going to act like sisters toward one another. We're going to behave as kin. If it was between unequal parties, a strong nation and a weaker nation, they would use the language of parent and child, father and son. The technical term is that the covenant entered these two parties into fictive kinship. A kind of family-like relationship that wasn't based on DNA, that wasn't based on blood and biology, but was nevertheless a familial relationship. Because that's what covenants do. Covenants create new families. The idea of covenant was then used by God to say, hey, I want to create family with you we think of this in terms of merit their lives as family, creating a new family among them. We use adoption. the adoption of a child who did not uh, originally come into the world through this family, but through adoption, through covenant, they become family together. Monasteries use this language. About sisters living together in covenant communities for their lives. Pictures of it in popular culture. I think that moment in Lord of the Rings where they're all sitting there and who's going to carry the ring? And Frodo finally says I'll do it. And they're like, I pledge you my bow. I pledge you my sword. And they create this family a covenant together to carry the ring toward Mordor. I think something similar happens with the pants and the sisterhood of the traveling pants. Um, but I've never seen the movie. I was just looking for a sisterhood reference and I was coming up short. So that was the best that I could do. And and if I'm totally off base, just forgive me for whatever. I, I don't actually know what happens in that movie. Just sister is in the title. Um, so that's that's all I had. But Israel knew this idea. Israel knew that covenants create families. Israel knew this. And so when the God of heaven and earth, when the creator of all things said to them, I want to make a covenant with you, they knew that God was inviting them to be family. That God was inviting them into a different relationship. And John knew this too. This is in the background of John's mind in this text. He even says it explicitly in 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called God's children. And that, my friends, is what we are. God's children in Jesus In the new covenant, through the life, death, and resurrection of the beloved Son of God, through the coming of the Holy Spirit, God has extended his family through covenant to include every single one of us. Why? Simply because of love. Because he loves us. You, each and every one of you, is God's beloved child. You are God's beloved daughter. You are God's beloved son. You are the beloved child of God. It's the consistent message throughout the scriptures. It's consistent throughout John. And I know it sounds so basic. I know it sounds simplistic. I know you've heard it a hundred, a thousand times in church but it is the most foundational and essential thing for us to understand that God is the Father who loves us. And because of his love for us, he sent his Son to bring us into covenants, to make us a part of his family. It's the most basic, essential, and simple thing. And yet, if we're honest, it's so unbelievably hard to believe. It may be the easiest thing for us to question. There are moments when we simply doubt our belovedness or we forget it or we dismiss it and say, maybe that can't be true about me. Maybe it's true about this person or that person, but I'm not sure it's true about me. And it's one thing to understand at a theoretical level or even a theological one. It's another thing to understand it experientially to know the love of God. It's one thing to hear. It's another thing to live out. It's one thing to understand on the surface. It's another thing to spend our entire lives plunging into the depths of his unchanging, never giving up love for us. Five years ago, the pastor and prolific author, his works included the message version of the scriptures, Eugene Peterson, he passed away. And at his memorial service, his son, Leif, uh, joked that over all of these years of ministry, his father only had one message. <laughs> and that For 30 years, he fooled his congregation. And for the rest of his life, he fooled the rest of us through his writings, believing that he was saying something new and novel with every sermon and with every book. For 30 years, he made us believe that he was saying something new But Lee said his father was just saying the same thing over and over and over again in different ways. He said his father's message was this that God loves you, He's on your side, He's coming after you, and He's relentless. God loves you, He's on your side, He's coming after you, and He's relentless. Relentless in his pursuits for every single one of his beloved children. So wherever you find yourself today, And whatever your experience was in your family of origin, whatever your experience was with your mom and dad, whatever your experience with adults and other people who are supposed to love you has been, what the gospel screams to us over and over and over again is that you are God's beloved. You're his beloved daughter. You are his beloved son. He loves you. He's on your side. He's coming for you and he's relentless. For whatever ways that you think you can outrun him or you can outresist him, he is relentless. He's on our side. He's coming for us. And he's never giving up. Leif said that every night his dad would walk into his room. Whether Leif was falling asleep or asleep, his dad would whisper this in his ear. His dad would lean over and say, Leif, God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. And he's relentless. Moms and dads, this is the greatest gift that you can give your kids is that they would grow up to know their belovedness. That they would grow up to not only know that you love them and that you're on their side and that you're coming for them and that you're relentless, but that God is the same way. That he loves them, that he's on their side, that he's coming for them and he's relentless. And spiritual moms and dads, Those of you who may not have kids of your own but who are called to be spiritual moms and dads in the church, this is the greatest gift that you can give to the kids and the young people that are in your life as well. To remind them, to show them, to put on display the love of God revealed in Jesus. John in his letter addresses each of these three groups two times. To the children, he says two messages, your sins have been forgiven, and you know the Father, the same things that were written to, by Jeremiah in chapter 31. He's referring to those who's, are ex, who are experiencing that initial elation of faith. Remember that moment in your life, I mean, when you first came to the knowledge of Jesus, where it hit you in a different way. There's an innocence of knowing forgiveness and an ecstasy that comes from experiencing the love of the Father and the fellowship of the saints. This is what the scripture writers refer to as the joy of our salvation, that moment of tasting and seeing the Lord is good and finding ours filled with little joy. The people of God are those who know struggle Sometimes we hear versions of the gospel that say, hey, once you know Jesus, life will be easy. But the word Israel, the word chosen out of biblical Hebrew to be the name for the whole people of God means those who struggle, those who wrestle. It's the very identification of who the people of God are, are those who wrestle and prevail those who wrestle and persevere, those who experience all kinds of trials and difficulties, but know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope is what doesn't disappoint us because we believe in the God who raises the dead. And then he talks to parents those so spiritual moms and dads and biological moms and dads and adopted moms and dads and foster care moms and dads and guardians and grandparents and everyone who's involved in the life of people who are new to faith. And John says the same thing to them twice. He says, parents, I'm writing to you because you have known the one who has existed from the beginning. You have known the one who's existed from the beginning. Contextually, there are false teachers in John's communities who are denying the preexistence of Jesus They're saying Jesus did not exist from the beginning. That he is not the eternal son of God and because of that they're abandoning the gospel that they heard in the beginning and the way of life that they learned from the beginning. But the mature are those who know these things. The mature are those who know the one who's existed from the beginning and who continue to know and follow the one who they've known since the beginning. Since they were children in faith and over time and through struggle, they've come to a place that that knowledge has deepened, that it's taken deeper root, that they've grown in their knowledge of God and not just in terms of theology and doctrine, but actually in terms of intimacy, that they've come to know their Father in deep and personal and persevering ways they've matured. And what we find in John with his emphasis on the beginning is we realize that the path from childhood to adulthood, the path from having new faith to having deep and mature faith, the path from being cared for and discipled in the community to being someone who cares for and disciples other, that path is paved by constancy, by staying with the one who is from the beginning. Our faith matures in the constancy of God. This is where our faith matures. Our faith matures in the constancy of God's love in the constancy of his word, in the constancy of his character, in the constancy of his presence, of knowing that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, of knowing the God of faithful love, the God who keeps his promises, the God who continues to be present and even in trouble is with us. Our faith matures in the constancy of abiding In God's love, abiding in his character, abiding in his word, abiding in his presence, abiding with his people, and finding that in that constancy, our faith matures, our faith grows. We live in an inconsistent, unpredictable, ever-changing world, and our lives are an unpredictable, ever-changing set of circumstances, but it's the constancy of God that is the comforting, reassuring, and stabilizing presence in our lives. It's his constancy that creates the conditions for our souls to grow, for our lives to actually mature into the image and likeness of Jesus. It's his unchanging nature, his unceasing love that sets the stage for us, that enables us to mature from spiritual children to spiritual parents to become people who know our belovedness and can help others realize theirs. How? By reflecting God's constancy in our lives to them. As Micah and Sarah and the band come forward, if you're a parent or grandparent, a godparent, a guardian, a foster care mom or dad, if you're someone that works With kids in any capacity, if you are a spiritual mom or dad, someone who's grown up in the church and is called into this place, I want to encourage you today to let your constancy be a sign, a signpost, a reflection of his. And that is not easy. Sometimes the most constant thing feels like diapers and dishes and demands and all kinds of other things. Or the most constant thing feels like our own failures, our own inability to measure up, our own things that we live with shame or regret or fear about. It's not easy. Our reflection of God's constancy will always be incomplete, it will always fall short. But I think that's part of the journey. Because it's in those moments that we can teach the young people and the children in our lives how to apologize, how to recognize our limits, how to be honest about our humanity and to point beyond ourselves to the Lamb of God whose love never changes, the God whose constants becomes really difficult in our lives in those moments where we realize that the people that we love are over them for years and we find them holding it all out at a distance in those moments the encouragement to us is to remain as constant as we can and then to throw ourselves into trusting God, into trusting the God who loves your kids who's on their side who's coming after them his love is relentless and to throw ourselves once again back into the place that we remember that though we have grown in our faith we will always remain the children of God those that God loves those whose God is on our side those who know that God is coming after us and those who know that our God is relentless in pursuit of us.
0: Every week we are reminded that this is Jesus' table that we are receiving at. Uh, which means he is the host. He is the one who made provision. The one who offers himself here. But it's also a reminder that this is a table of celebration. This is the table of a celebration of our adoption, that we come to receive these elements as beloved children of God. So I invite you to come and receive these elements this morning with another awakening, perhaps a first time awakening to that level of belovedness. You're chosen that you were called, that you were born into the love of God. If you're not ready to receive love, thank you so much for coming. I pray that you would keep coming, that you would keep being curious about love God, what it means for your life, that you are chosen and dearly loved like a child. But if you are ready to begin following Jesus, I invite you to join us as we make confession, as we receive again the mercy of God, the words will be on the screen. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. It's my joy this morning to announce good news to us, words that are true not because I'm saying them, because of what our loving God has done. So would you open your hands again to receive the mercy of God. The never ending, ever flowing fountain of the love of God that we are constantly under whether we know it or not. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners and this is what proves the love of God for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. As those who have been raised to new life with Jesus, would you please stand and offer the peace of Christ to those around you? As we come back together, I want to remind us that Jesus is here. Would you lift up your hearts? Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It It is such a good and a joyful thing to give thanks to you, Father Almighty. In your love, you formed us in your image and you breathed your life into us. When our love failed, your love remained steadfast. When we were unfaithful, you sent your son to be faithful on our behalf. On the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, Jesus told his friends about this new covenant that he was making with us. He took bread and after he had blessed it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after the supper was over, He took the cup of wine and when he had given thanks, he said to them, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of a new covenant. It's shed for you, for the love of you and for the forgiveness of sins. So whenever you drink it, remember me. And so God, in remembrance of your mighty acts in Jesus Christ. We proclaim together this mystery of our faith. Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. I invite you to stretch your hands out to bless these elements with me and to invite the Holy Spirit to meet us here. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on us on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the body and the blood of Christ so that we can be for the world, the body of Christ which is, would you make us one with Jesus and make us world until Christ comes back in final victory and we see him face to face. Amen. I want to invite the servers to come forward now. I want to remind you that these are the gifts of God, and they're given for us, the people of God. So as you receive them, remember that Jesus loves you, that Jesus died for you. Feed on this, feed on him in your hearts, by faith and with thanksgiving. If this is your first time here, you can scan this QR code. It has some communion instructions. You're also welcome to just watch what's going on around you and follow suit. If you're unable to come forward, please ask someone around you to bring the elements back to you. Now let's worship together as we come to the table.